Well, our reading is from Matthew 2. If you have a Blue Church Bible, it's page 966. So that's Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who's been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, Where is the Christ, where the Christ was to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him... Report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in, Judah, in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Thanks, Sharon. Um, please have your Bibles open. We're going to look at that passage now. Um, but let me hit you with a question as we look at Matthew 2. Uh, when was the last time, if you were at church uh, at Christmas, that you had Matthew 2 explained? When was Matthew 2 read? When was Matthew 2 referred to? Has there ever been a time? I think there's a reason for that. 
When it comes to Christmas, these words kind of pop out, uh, light, angels, joy, um, angelic hosts. Um, there's kind of an aroma to Christmas. There's also, it's not just Christmas pudding, there's also um, just a sentiment and emotionality that is enjoyed at Christmas like any, more, than, more than any other time of year. Um, and if you looked at Matthew chapter 2, it's my premise to present before you, it would pierce that to the very heart. Look at some of the themes of uh, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is kind of like a road movie where you go from Bethlehem to Egypt and then you end up in Nazareth. But uh, here you've got some very different emotive words that are not joy-filled, that are not tinsel-covered, that are not uh, happiness-saturated. What do you read? You read about a slaughter, a tyrant. You read about someone who forces people to become refugees and literally fly away to Egypt. You hear terrible brutality. And that's why you don't want to read this at Christmas time. But Matthew very intentionally puts these two chapters together, one and two. One, we, as we began our journey last week in Matthew's Gospel, looking at this strange genealogy that's so important if you're a Jewish person, as Matthew wrote to Jewish hearers in about AD 65 to explain where Jesus has come from, just like that BBC TV show, Who Do You Think You Are? This is who Jesus knows he is because of the family line that he has. And by the time we get to chapter 2, Matthew's concern is still to show us Jesus' identity. He cuts through very quickly the smells and bells of Christmas with this passage. And he shows us the reality by putting these two chapters together that there is great joy in the Christmas story, in the Christmas narrative. But there's also war. There's happiness, but there's also strife. And these two themes are very closely interwoven in the gospel. Think of that Luke chapter 2, at the start of Luke's version of the life of Jesus. There's this old man, this old geezer, if we're going to be slightly disrespectful, who's holding this babe in his arms and says, now I, have, now I can depart because I've seen the salvation that I've been longing for. But then he says, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce his or your own soul too. At the start of the life of Jesus in Luke's account, there's this ominous Hans Zimmer-like undertone of deep moodiness that Jesus brings joy, but there's, a, there's also strife. And Matthew's doing something very similar. There's joy because the saviour of the world has come. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Give him his name as Jesus, the angel tells Joseph, his dad, because he will save the people from their sins. That's joy. That's happiness. But then in chapter 2, there is an eerie undertone of brutality and a tyrant appears because the main character of chapter 2 is not Jesus, not Joseph, not Mary, but Herod. Herod drives the action. Herod is front and center. And Herod reminds us of this principle, point number one. Christianity, Christianity is a fight. Christianity is a fight. Herod takes center stage in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel. And Herod was a nasty piece of work. He uh, received, you can see his title from chapter 2, uh, verse 1, King Herod. He was the king of Judea. He received this 
um, locale and this title. In about AD uh, 40, it took him three years, having been given this land by the authority of the Romans, to actually subjugate the Jews. And he was an absolute nasty piece of work. When he first came to power, the first thing he did was to slaughter the previous dynasty. He didn't want any competition, so he butchered them all. The Hasmonean dynasty came to a bloody and a sudden end. At one point in his life, he was fed up with what the Sanhedrin, the, the religious ruling class of the Jewish people, were saying. So he, he slaughtered half of them. Seventy men lost their lives because what they were saying was not pleasing to King Herod. At one point, just because he was fed up with them, he murdered 300 nobles of the court. And at another time, just like King Henry VIII, he was fed up with his wife. And so he may have said, off with her head as well, and just for good measure, I will kill her mother-in-law. I've never thought that. He was a bloody, bloodthirsty, tyrannical, illogical man who Matthew puts front and center in chapter 2 to show Christianity is a message of joy, chapter 1, verse 21, but it's also a fight and there's strife and there's struggle. And this violent attitude towards Jesus Christ is seen from beginning to end. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, you can see from Matthew's gospel that an angel appears to Joseph to say, you need to run. You need to flee. You need to pack what you've got and run away because of Herod. And he's heard, and they moved from Asia to Africa as quick as they could. Look at verses 16 to 17, the second part of the passage. Here's tyrannical, bloodthirsty, genocidical, if that were even a word, Herod. And he says, just to make sure I've been tricked, I'm going to kill every baby under two. A terrible, terrible thing to do. He's been tricked, and so he has this reaction. I don't want anyone to stand against me. I am the king of Judea. I am the king of the Jews. Look at sentence 22. When he dies, the family line wants to continue their monopoly on power. And so it reads, But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, he, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Surely the apple wouldn't fall far from the tree. So Joseph, Mary, especially Jesus, would not be safe. So they didn't want to settle back at home. Fears, insecurity, and this drive for power is what chapter 2 shows us about Herod, who's front and centre. Christianity is a fight. Just over 100 years ago, this man, uh, J.C. Ryle, who was the Bishop of Liverpool, can we draw some of those... Curtains, perhaps, and make it a bit clearer. Um, he was the Bishop of Liverpool, um, and he wrote a famous book called Holiness. And in his book, Holiness, you think, what's that got to do with chapter 2 of Matthew? In his book, Holiness, um, Bishop Ryle, who looks a, a real kind of fun guy to be around with that beard, he was thinking about modern Christianity in 18th century and into the 19th century. And he says there's something in modern Christianity, this is 150 years ago, that has lost biblical Christianity. This is what he wrote, just a few sentences from his book, Holiness. He says, there's a vast quantity of religion current in the world, which is not true. Genuine Christianity. It passes muster. It satisfies sleepy consciences. I love that phrase. But it's not the real thing, which was called Christianity 1,800 years ago in the time of Jesus. 
The problem is you never see any fight about their religion, of spiritual strife, of exertion, of conflict, and self-denial, and watching and warring. They know literally nothing at all. Obviously not going to mince his words. It's certainly not the Christianity of the Bible. True Christianity, Ryle says, is a fight. It's a war. The child of God has two great marks about them, and of these two we have one. There's inward warfare and inward peace. That's what Matthew 1 and 2 is saying. God has sent his son to die for the sins of the world. He's the saviour. Name him Jesus, because he'll save a people from their sins. But in chapter 2, it's bloodthirsty and brutality and war. It's a fight within and without. That's what the gospel tells us. That's what Bishop Ryle wanted to remind his church 15 or 150 years ago. If we've lost this idea that there is a fight to Christianity, that Jesus is not just saviour, he's king, and a king who has claims on his people, we've lost something. It's not the Christianity of the Bible. There's radical peace, a new, restored relationship with God through Jesus. But there's a warring in our hearts. There's, there's a warring over authority. Who's on the throne of our hearts? We want to be there. We are there until God pushes us off by the winsomeness of his son through his grace. Some of what it means to be a Christian, a new desire in our hearts, things that used to uh, not bother us, well, they bother us now. We're concerned about if we're going to watch one box set or two. We're concerned about our resources. We're concerned about our energies. We're concerned about the future. A lot of things that used to bother us don't anymore, and a lot of things that never bothered us now do. What about my neighbour who's not yet a Christian? That matters to me now. What about all this money that's in the bank? Who am I going to leave it to when I'm gone? I want to give it away. How am I going to use my time and resources? I could build up an enterprise. I could work for 40 years and retire and play golf. What good's that going to do? I want to spend my time for what really counts, what's eternal, what's lasting. I want to spend all my energies for Jesus. That's only possible when there's a fight in your heart. New desires, new passions, new longings. And that comes because the king has come. And Herod is just a picture of a person who's shaking his tiny little fist saying, I do not want to get off the throne and I'll do whatever it takes to keep my hands on power. And we do it in just a less bloody way unless God breaks in by his grace. Christianity is a fight. But that's only a, a true tenant if we can work out the reason for the fight. That's the second point. If Christianity is a fight, why? What's the reason for the fight? Look at the start of the passage, please. Look at verses 1 to 12. This is the familiar part that we could write a, a Christmas carol about, or three, we three kings of Orient are, you know, taxi and car. That's the, uh, the childhood version. But here we meet the Magi. They come from the east. They may have been astronomers. They may have been kings. Um, but here they come with the question, verse 2, where is the one who has been born king? Their claim from that sentence, verse 2 of chapter 2, Jesus is not um, someone who's going to bring a military coup about. He's not someone who's going to buy himself a title with a load of money that he's made from uh, Silicon Valley. Jesus was king at his birth, as the Christmas carol says. He doesn't need to prove anything to anybody. Matthew chapter 1 shows the king's lineage, that he comes through the line of kings. He's born in the city of kings. 
And here, Magi come saying, we've followed a star. We've seen a sign from the heavens. And we've come to worship the king. Where is the king who has been born? No one can doubt his credentials. He's king at his birth. But verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was deeply troubled, say some Bibles. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now that in the Bible is what's called an understatement. He was deeply troubled. It was the dark night of the soul. He would be turning and sweating and he wouldn't be able to do anything. And so he makes this rue up in verses 1 to 12 of trying to find out through the back door, through back channels, where is this baby who's threatening my authority? He wants to get his hands on my throne. That's the background to the fight. It's a power struggle between the temporary uh, despot and the real king. When Jesus Christ comes, there is a reason for the fight between people and within people. And it's about his authority. Who's king? That's the the big issue in Herod's mind. I don't want to lose my authority. And neither do we. Jesus Christ came saying, Come unto me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus Christ said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart. Jesus Christ is gentle, he's kind, he's tender, he's merciful, he's compassionate. But Jesus also says this, unless you deny yourself and take up your cross, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you love me more than your mum and dad, you don't love me at all. Unless you lose your life for my sake, you won't find it. Jesus said that. Why do you call me teacher, says Jesus, and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? There's the edge to Jesus' words. It's the authority and the words of the king. John Stott says, Jesus came not just as saviour and lord, we all love the idea of being rescued. As someone who saw Man of Steel, again for the second time this week, um, the modern version of Superman, we love a hero, whether he's got a spandex on or a cape on his back. We love the idea of being rescued when we're in times of trouble. But Matthew and John Stott is saying that Jesus came as saviour, but he's also king before whom we bow. That's the reason for the fight within, between people, within people, wrestling with the authority of the sovereign, of the king. John Stott says in a classic passage from Basic Christianity, no one who ever met Jesus Christ ever responded moderately to him. There are only three things you see people doing when they meet the real Jesus. They run away from the real Jesus in terror, away from him. They assault him. Who do you think you are? Or they bow before him. Here we have the Magi. Where's the one who's been born King of the Jews? We want to worship him. We've got gifts for him. We want to acknowledge his authority and kingship and rule. And here's Herod who says, where's the king? Verse 16, you see the fury of Herod versus the worshipful spirit of the Magi, verse 2. One has gifts, the other has a sword, so to speak. More uh, colloquially, five years ago, my brother was in charge of a marketing campaign for Marmite. 
He uh, works up in the city and he had this idea, along with a few other friends, on Valentine's Day, I don't know if you saw it, to project the image of Marmite with a few of those kind of uh, Clinton card characters with not many clothes on and a few love hearts in the right places. He wanted to project it onto the Houses of Parliament. I don't know if you saw it. It's a wonderful success for a marketing campaign and it just says Marmite, love it or hate it on Valentine's Day. Really got a lot of press. People could see it. It was projected up from a boat that was on the Thames. It's a bit like Brexit. You love it or hate it. It divides people. Who loves Marmite? Who loves Bovril? Who loves that other Vegemite thing that should be con you know, consigned to the bin? Um, what's your view on Brexit? It's something that polarizes people, and so does Jesus. That's the point. Why is there a fight in, within? Why is there a fight between people? Because Jesus has the audacity to claim the kingship not just of the whole world but of the whole world and your heart too and we can respond in only three ways we run away in terror we assault him with anger and fury who do you think you are or we recognize his kingship and we bow before him in total surrender there's no other way to respond to the real jesus says matthew 1 and 2 the king has come joy to the world the lord has come let earth receive her king. That's what Matthew wants us to see. But as the king comes, he brings a fight. And the reason for the fight is because there is a war in our hearts that we do not want to lose grip on the throne of our hearts. But the king who comes and brings this fight within and without has come to, uh, come to establish an upside-down kingdom. I'm going to be using this phrase as we get to the Beatitudes, but I couldn't think of a better one. We thought uh, last week in the upside-down kingdom of chapter 1, Jesus is absolutely unique. No one, claims Matthew, organized his family tree like this. No one would have included women. They were downtrodden. They were overlooked. They were usurped. But Jesus is proud to include women in his family tree. No one would include Gentiles. It's for Jews and Jews only. The Messiah would come to save them and them alone. And Matthew says, no, Jesus came to save Jew and Gentile alike. It's for lawbreakers. Just read the story. Look at the background of chapter 1. You see prostitutes that are rescued. You see people that are committed incests, incest that are now forgiven. It's a, a, skeleton full, a skeleton full of cupboards. It's a cupboard full of skeletons in the genealogy. And yet Jesus says, those are my people and I'm proud of them. And by the time we get to chapter 2, the story continues. It's an upside-down kingdom where those who are marginalized and overlooked are included in God's family. I've overlooked this for many years, but look what happens in verses 19 when Herod dies, his son is on the throne. Uh, verse 21 tells us that. But look at what happens to Joseph as he leaves Egypt, gets in there, packs up his caravan and his zephyr, and off he goes. And he comes back to home. He wants to go home in verses 20 and 21. And by the time we get to 23, you realize that he's afraid. If I go home, maybe I'll be found. And they're forced to go back to Galilee in Nazareth. Nazareth, that was the, the wrong side of the tracks. That's the postcode that you didn't want. Think of what's said in John's Gospel, John 1:46, when Nathaniel comes and uh, so it was told, we found the Messiah, we found God's king. And Nathaniel writes down those awesome words, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, that's the postcode we don't go to. That's the place where the police stop kind of driving through at night. And yet because of the actions of Herod, God's will is done. 
and uh, Joseph and Mary with their first child end up in Nazareth, the place that's the wrong side of the tracks, the place that people like walking by and not walking through in the darkness, something like that. It's completely against the priorities of the world. In the world, if you want to say something authoritative, you've got to come from Cambridge or Oxford. You've got to come from the right places. If you want to speak with authority, when you need to be in the seats of power, up in Westminster. But look at how the Bible works. God always turns things upside down. God chooses to bring his message not through the great powers of the world, not through the might of Assyria, not through the greatness of Babylon, not through the Roman generals, but through the Jewish people who were never in power in the history of the world. This tiny little nation from whom came the Messiah, who would sit on the throne eternally. Think of uh, how Goliath, that great giant of a man, literally was overcome by God. What did God do? Did he say, oh, Goliath is nine foot, I'm going to send a guy from Israel who's a bit of a freak and play in the NBA and he's going to be 12 feet high. I'm going to send someone who's greater. No, he did the very opposite. It's upside down in God's kingdom. He didn't send someone greater, he sent the lesser. He sent David. Think about the salvation of the world. How will the world be saved and rescued? It's through a man who's born on the wrong side of the tracks in, in Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? One thing, one person. His name is Jesus. He was born to a poor family. They were refugees, you know. They used to live in Egypt. He was born in the wrong place, not in a palace, but in a stable. And he was raised in this place, Nazareth. Completely upside down way of operating. We see it in chapter 1. We see it in chapter 2. It's right the way through the Gospels. It's an upside down kingdom. The disciples struggled with it. When are you going to save the world, Jesus? When are you going to use your power and your might to, to overthrow the Romans, to put them under your heel? And Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not the way I'll operate. I'm going to use my power by showing the full extent of my love. Not by putting it on display in a worldly way, but by having grace and power under control. It's the story of chapter 2, where the Christmas narrative takes a dark and a sober tone. And it's how will we respond to the king of the universe? How will we respond to the king who causes peace but also strife, who brings a sword and division but also grace? He will humble you. And if he comes into your life, it will not be in the way that you think. He will come not only bringing peace but also a war within you of priorities and convictions. He's not simply a saviour. He's also a king. There's a very few interesting verses, verses 17 and 18, that I don't want to miss. This quote from the Old Testament, there are many quotes in uh, chapter 2. Look at verse 17 and 18. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Strange set of verses. In the Old Testament... Rachel gave birth to at least 12 sons and some daughters as well. She was the wife of Jacob, through whom came the family line of King Jesus. We can see that from chapter 1 again. She uh, died giving birth to Benjamin. She was buried in Bethlehem. And her death and suffering and pain, through that came the life of Jesus. Many years later, from those verses as well, when Israel sinned against God, they result of which was God's justice meant that they were sold into exile. 
They disappeared. This nation looked like God was going back on his promises and they trooped out under the, uh, the authority of Babylon to a faraway land. It looked like Israel was dead and God's promises were coming to an end. And yet Jeremiah spoke these words at that time and said, remember Rachel? Remember her weeping? Rachel was weeping again for her children. And he goes back and he takes this principle to say, through suffering, through death, God very often brings life and joy. The exile looked like it was an end, but actually it's a way to generation, a bit like a forest fire. You know when there's an amazing forest fire often in the Americas or in northern Spain last year? Absolute devastation, but sometimes in God's kindness there can be regrowth and regeneration. And God did exactly the same thing. He brought a remnant back, a remnant of many people. And even now the suffering of this world comes because of Jesus. And the suffering that comes into our life because of Jesus as you follow him, if you give that to Jesus, says these sentences, it's possible that God will use that as a way to life. That's what's being said here. Through tears, there can be tears of joy. Are you mourning over anything this morning? Are you crying or coming to church through tears? Are you concerned that as you submit to Jesus the King, there will be suffering, humiliation? Jesus says, through verses 17 and 18, even through tears there will be comfort and joy. Maybe you have to wait until he returns. But suffering is purposeful. And it's only an apparent death. And through apparent death, there can be life and restoration. We're going to turn our attention now to this king and how he showed his kingly rule. Not through might and power, not through a display of credentials, or he could have done that. But this king showed his power and his might by dying for the sins of the world. If you're a Christian, we're going to transition now to the table. This uh, 3D visual aid that explains the gospel again, that Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, took bread and he ripped it apart as his body symbolically was ripped apart. As uh, we take a cup, it's symbolic of the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins and for the forgiveness of sins that we could never erase ourselves. And if you're a Christian, then this table is for you. If you're not yet a Christian, please stay. Please don't. Uh, leg it, please don't run away, please don't feel embarrassed, but please stay and observe and listen to what's said and what's done. Um, but this table is for every Christian here, whether you're passing through, whether this is your church home, this table's for you.